0: Hi, I'm Christy Hurt, the founder of The CoLab. We are a collective of brand professionals sharing our career stories. Every week, we pair up two members and they interview each other. So you'll get to hear one episode this week and one next week. We're heading into our third year of The CoLab and you can join us too. Sign up at jointhecolab.com and then tell your story.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to be here today on the collab career stories with the amazing Charlotta Helikius. Charlotta, did I say that correctly?
0: Yes, we both have quite the last names. They're tongue twisters, but you did a good job.
1: Okay, good. (laughs) We do. And I'm just so excited to get to know you a little bit more. Your career looks super fascinating. And like mine, it seems like rooted in a bit of design. I'm curious about how you started off and if you could tell us just a little bit more about what you do today.
0: Yeah, for sure. You are entirely right. I think you described your career as a designer's career and I had never thought about it that way, but I identify with that as well. I am Swedish originally, which is why I have such a tongue twister for a first name and a last name. Don't ask me about my middle names, they add to the confusion. But yeah, Swedish originally my mom is a researcher and my dad is a artist. So I kind of was always very creative and, and really kind of leaned into that through my younger years. I played music for a long time. I was very cool in school as the number one clarinetist in the marching band. <laughs> and I kind of quickly realized that being a professional musician requires a lot of alone time. And I am a people person. So when you know, I was 18, I decided to stop playing the clarinet and instead kind of focused all my attention on getting into college at the time. I studied industrial design to start off with and just had like such a fun time applying to art schools that it kind of convinced me that it was the right thing to do for me. So I did that for a couple of years and then I worked in furniture design as an industrial designer, went to Milan Furniture Fair a couple of times. I have some really fond memories of kind of running around Milan late at night with like very low phone battery. And I think I was like 18 or 19 <laughs> at the time. I still have a claim to fame from that period, which is that I designed this tile system that the, the new Fab Five have in their like Fab Five kitchen. So it's, it's me and Anthony and, and the tile the tile designs that I made that really stand out to me from that time. <laughs>
1: No way. Okay, so as someone who also loves Milan, has lived there myself, and has definitely partaken in the Barbasso post-Salone scenes that happened during those furniture fairs, I'm so interested to learn, how did you... Connect the dots and get this tile system into the Fab Five's kitchen.
0: I have very little to do with that, to be honest. Like I basically worked for this architecture and design firm in Stockholm, Sweden, called Klaasom Koivisto Rune.
1: Wait, can you say that? Can you say that again? I just love the way that you said it.
0: Yeah, it's they're called Klaasom Koivisto Rune. It's called CKR for short, but it's really these like three designers that have this like very close friendship and they do everything together. And I they've worked together for like 30, 40 years at this point. Basically, we got a, a very like simple ask from this tile company while I was at CKR and they kind of asked me to do a first pass, which meant me getting glasses from trying to put tile designs in as many constellations as possible for like weeks on end. It ended up winning actually like Floor of the year for, I think, L Interior in China and in Europe. So I think that's probably how Anthony found it.
1: Wow, that is so cool. And I'm just going to back up a few steps because I want to point out that you are in the Rockaways, I'm in Brooklyn but you're Swedish and you grew up in Sweden. Is that right?
0: Yes, I'm fully Swedish. All my family is in Europe. I moved to the U.S. to come to grad school at SVA in New York. So that kind of was obviously a very big move for me at the time and has kind of, yeah, changed my trajectory, I think, ever since.
1: Had you been to New York before moving here?
0: I had been once when I was 17 and... The only things I can remember is that we went to a like Midtown Brasserie and I asked for ketchup. It was like a Italian restaurant, I think. And I asked for ketchup and like the stairs that I would get around the restaurant was wild. Like they were shocked that like, I would add ketchup to an Italian dish, which is like very Swedish for for the folks that that know that culture. And then I also think we were like in Wall Street a bunch. Like those are the really only two memories I have from coming to New York before like moving here and really going, you know, in deep.
1: I asked because our careers mirror each other in certain ways being so rooted in design, also having one foot here in the states and one foot elsewhere, like in an international but European setting, I would say. And, you know, I grew up in Texas, but I had actually never been to New York City before I moved here. And I just remember that thrill of finally finding my people, it felt like. That being said, I did a study abroad program in Copenhagen, and I also looked at furniture design during that time. And I think it was super influential for me to just see how design was so prioritized, Can you speak a little bit to how design has been a part of your life or if it's been a part of your life growing up in Sweden?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's similar to Italy in some ways, like the Scandinavian culture definitely has design as kind of an ultimate yeah, it's like an ultimate aspect, a very core aspect to Scandinavian culture. And it tends to follow, like its form follows function is the belief system, I'd say, of design in Scandinavia. So yeah, I mean, it, it has always been a part of, of the way that I've moved through life to this day, can't read a, a slide, like a deck, if the hierarchy isn't right. Like I just, I have a very hard time ingesting information if it's not beautiful. So I think that probably like connects back to my, my Scandi roots somehow. I actually find the, the industry of industrial design or like design in, in Scandinavia to be quite similar to the fashion industry in New York. You know, it's like part of the fabric of the place. You can't really be there without coming across it and interacting with it in some ways. So, yeah, definitely very fundamental to my
1: life outlook. So tell us what you do now.
0: I've gone through quite couple of careers in my lifetime. As I said, I started as an industrial designer and then I went back to grad school, came to New York in that period of time, and really discovered kind of brand strategy through my grad school program at SVA. After that I worked as a trend forecaster for PSFK Labs under Scott Lachute, which is a he was a great manager and a great leader there. Really kind of helping companies figure out what the future would look like in let's say like 10-15 years and it could be kind of clear as you know what's the future of transportation and as vague as like what the what will cities look like in 10-15 years so you know wrote a lot during that time we tended to create trend reports and then i made the move into more brand strategy like traditional brand strategy after that so I joined Red Scout, which is the place that I'm still working at seven years later, which is a wild amount of time in the agency world in New York. But yeah, we work with clients of all kinds in all categories when they go through big moments of inflection, like the founder is leaving and, you know, there's a vacuum for a vision for the company, or they're losing out on an audience base that they really need to kind of attract, or they've gotten a lot of funding recently and they don't really know what to do with it. So. I tend to work with companies that have a big problem ahead of them. And then I use creative creativity and brand tools to forge a new path and kind of, yeah, define a new goal and then help them implement how to make that goal real over X amount of years it's a very abstract job.
1: I think abstract jobs are sometimes the most challenging, but hands down the most rewarding. And I think they definitely lend themselves to be the jobs of people like us, like designers, people who have that type of outlook that can find a bit of common thread within the chaos of whatever is happening. So yeah, you
0: said in your interview that you're very comfortable with vagueness. And I was like, That really resonates with me because I do think that that is almost like my main strength. Like there's not a vague problem or question that somebody hasn't already thrown at me, you know, and like, I'm very proud of the fact that like these days, I feel like whatever people ask of me or like whatever the vague question is that they have, I do have a way to figure out how to get to an answer. So yeah, vagueness is is power, right?
1: Totally. And here's a vague question for you. Given that you have done so much and it sounds like have worked not only with very tangible products in industrial design, in a physical and spatial way, and now you're working in the intangible, you're working in brand strategy, you're using creative strategy in order to help brands pivot. What's next for you? If you could do anything, where would you want to be and what would you want to be doing?
0: Well, I also have a side project. So I—that that is the easy answer to this question. I've been trying to start a company over the past couple of years that is in the beauty space or that's in the fragrance category specifically. It's called Bod. It's all about disobedient body care, which is super fun. So I do hope that that is part of my future in some capacity. So when thinking about what I want to do next, I think I have built this skill set of figuring out vague problems as as we've talked about. Part of what feels limiting in in my career right now is that, you know, when you work like a consultant client dynamic, at a certain point, you kind of hand off where you've landed and you just cross your fingers that The wind doesn't change at the company, or you know, the team doesn't change, and that they actually can institutionalize some of the ideas that we've come to. So, I want to go in house at a place and really figure out how to like implement these lofty, large scale, abstract ideas all the way down into like templates and tools that people work with, work through in the day-to-day to to kind of drive the organization towards change.
1: That's so interesting. I also don't know anything about this idea of disobedient body space. So can you tell me a little bit about that and where BOD started from?
0: Yeah, so BOD started in COVID, actually. It was me and my two friends, my two co-founders. We've known each other for a decade already, we were just reading, you know, the news at the time was very alarming, very stressful. And it was clear to us at that point that we were looking at an extended period of time where life would look different. And so we kind of came together and agreed that we can't just talk about how terrible the world is every day, like we need to have a constructive topic of conversation, like our relationship to each other is more important now than it's been in the past. Like, how can we kind of build a structure around our community, like the three of us and our relationship. And through having those conversations, we kind of landed on this idea that we wanted to start a company. My co-founder, who is the CEO, Monica Ha, she has grown up in and around the beauty space all her life. She's a Vietnamese first-gen immigrant. So a lot of her family works in that industry. I have a lot of passion for that industry as well. It was one of my first jobs to work at this Swedish luxury spa and sell body care products to guests. So, we kind of coalesced around this shared passion and started to develop our concept, develop our idea which is a disobedient body care brand. We want to be to Bath and Body Works what Parade is to Victoria's Secret. So, yeah, it's it's I like to describe it it's it's kind of like if the if a beauty brand or a body care brand had a baby with a fashion industry, Bod would be one of the kids coming out of that. <laughs>
1: It sounds like my type of love child. Can I buy these products? What stage are you guys at? I know that new companies have many different stages, and I'm hoping that it's at a stage that I can go out and get some of this.
0: And you will have to be disappointed because we have not launched yet. We're launching in the fall, hopefully. But we have been you know, fundraising and pushing the needle forward for the past Two, three years. It's no secret that being a consumer category with an all-female founder lineup definitely has some <laughs> challenges. Fundraising in a recession is a trip. If anybody wants to talk more about that, let me know. It's it could be quite bleak. You know, I think part of being a founder is to feel like you are 100 steps behind doing the wrong thing at all times, but then also realizing that you are every day getting closer to your goal. And those two things can both be true at the same time.
1: That's so interesting, especially because I think it relates to design so much in what we do, having these contradictions exist together and actually probably produce the most innovative results. Just acknowledging that Bad and good challenges and opportunities are sort of one in the same. I'd love to know if there was a piece of advice that you were given at the beginning of your career that you might be returning to now that you're at the stage that you're in and you're also founding a company.
0: I think one of the most important pieces of advice that I was given and that I pass on very eagerly to the people on my team today is choose what feedback you listen to. People have a hard time with feedback because it kind of feels binary. It's either you follow it or you don't. And if somebody said something, then you probably failed. So it's like very, it's a very emotional experience to to listen to feedback. And, you know, I remember in my early career, a lot of the feedback I would get was like, you're too direct. Like you're too loud. Like you take too much space. It was always along those lines in like various versions. And Someone told me to be like, well, do you care about what they're saying? Like, is that something that you do want to change about yourself? And it gave me this moment to be like, no, actually, like, even though it is something that they think about me and that, you know, if I change it, it might be easier for them to work with me. That is actually not serving me in my long-term growth. Like, I'm not interested in being a more quiet collaborator. That kind of just like reframed feedback for me, you know, because it kind of becomes in neutral. People always have agendas for what they want you to do. And you should obviously have open mind, open ears to what people say. They might give you a perspective you haven't heard, but that doesn't mean that you have to do what they say.
1: That is a piece of advice that I feel like I need to hear. And I wish almost my younger self heard when she was going through architecture and design school and getting constant feedback and having that dynamic be integral to projects and continuing that type of dynamic even to this day in the work that I think you and I both do. So I love that. Same
0: because I think like architecture school is famous for having really hard critiques. I think industrial design is like right below it. I don't think it ever gets as vicious as I think that the architecture crits can be, but- It does build your immune system against hearing feedback and like having constructive conversations about like what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, change something. And so even us talking about it now makes me realize that that kind of has laid the foundation for like how I run a team and like all of the work that I do in the day to day today.
1: Totally. I want to paint a picture for the listeners because you are sitting in front of A painting that I'm hoping you painted because it's so amazing, colorful, and you also have to your left, I think, a series of calendars, but they are happy calendars because they are brightly colored with perfect typography and scale. So can you tell us a little bit about the painting behind you?
0: My dad is an artist, and so these are smuggled in illegally on a Delta flight. You're not allowed to travel with paintings because of the insurance risk, as something that not everyone might know. Yeah, my dad is, well, he's an artist, like, in his soul. He works at a a music school as, like, a a janitor-type character. He talks, like, you know, philosophy with the kids all day. Like, that's really his happy place. But yeah, he paints in oil, very abstract. There's a lot of color. And if you saw me in person, you'd see that I rarely wear black. I'm always in some crazy color combination. Kind of feel like Gen Z stole my style, but that's okay. I'm getting over it.
1: It's nice of you to share. Let's just put it that way. I love color. You know, as someone who works for Vespa, I think that I've always been drawn to color too. I think it's a really confident and powerful tool of expression and something that's fun and can change, change with your mood, change with the weather or the day. So I love that. I want to circle back to, you know, your beginning and your passion for music and how you might still keeping that up and how it might influence the work that you do today
0: my music career I mean I played the clarinet for eight years full-time in like a school that took it very seriously so I really had my heart set on being like a professional clarinetist for a while I think what that period in my life really taught me is that life is a bunch of doors and if you open one there will be another one behind it and you kind of just have to commit to exploring whatever is out there kind of similar to what you were saying in your interview gina like it's not so much about having a a plan but just like moving intuitively through the options that you're given or that you find for yourself at any given time and then trusting that there will be something beyond that door with music i kind of felt like i had moved to a place where it didn't feel as collaborative, you know, when you're a professional musician, you, or a classical professional musician, I should say that, like I was classically trained, which means that you're practicing alone for five hours a day in a room doing scales or whatever. And I think that made it really clear to me that this is not what I want to do. I am a collaborator, I am a team person, like that is where I get my energy, my strength. I love being a a kind of a protector and championing the agenda of the team. And so, yeah, that, that was like a a big reason why I kind of left left that path. But, you know, my partner's in two bands and I listen to music and hear live music all the time. So it's definitely still a topic I'm interested in. I just I'm not a creator in that way anymore.
1: Yeah, I hear you. You know, as designers, I feel like there's a tendency to not view mistakes as anything other than experimentation and different experiments that we go through in order to get to a final solution. And I always like to think of quote unquote failure as data acquisition. This is something that happened and there's a learning in there. I wonder from your career, which has spanned continents and industries, if there are any failures that actually became better tools you to learn how to succeed?
0: Yeah, I share your perspective. Like, I don't really think of anything as a failure, really. And I think like that binary thinking of like, good and bad, like right and wrong, it just, who does that serve? Like, in any, any debate, any topic, like it just, it's oversimplifying. I think one of the things that I toiled a lot with in the last, like, five, seven years is, am I making a mistake by staying at the same company for so long I think the culture the work culture in New York especially in the agency sphere is two three years at a place and then you move on like there's a lot of job hopping and I think for a while I was like is that what I should be doing and is would that produce better outcomes than like staying and you know I got great opportunities but none of them really felt right and so I kind of Every time I chose to stay, kind of felt like I was failing to follow the plan that you're supposed to in the agency world. Now I don't think of it that way. I work with the same people for like five years, and I actually think that that is a different skill to learn. And like, you know, you kind of get to like perfect systems and like really get to know the people that you're working with in a different way. So I'm happy with my decision now. I would have I would do it over exactly the same, but it was something that for a while felt like I w- I was failing.
1: Yeah, but I love that it's basically subverting the system, the status quo of job hopping, and I think that finding the real challenges within that, right, within staying in the same place provided it sounds like a lot of opportunity for growth both personally and professionally.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been there for like so long. I've had every job in the strategy department almost <laughs> like so it it definitely gives a different perspective. I think every time I get into trouble or like I have a moment of doubt is when I think there's something I should be doing. Like there's like this external rule book or this external Map that I should be following and that I'm not. So it's just, I've noticed that in myself that, like, that is what creates the uneasy feeling. It usually is not something that, like, I create on my own. These days, I think you should never follow a rule if you can.
1: I agree. I agree. I want to end, I hope, on a fun note, which is where can I find you outside of the office? What do you like to do? You're in the Rockaways. Are you? a surfer?
0: I mean, I don't identify as a surfer, even though I do have a surfboard and have been known to surf. Yeah, I'm definitely a beginner. But yes, you can find me on the beach. I'm usually either picking up plastic or playing with my dog or running. I'm also in the city a bunch. I love like eating new food and trying new restaurants. So yeah, exploring culture, exploring Queens taking photos. I'm big on that lately. Yeah, film photos are super fun. Going back to the analog is always a trip these days.
1: Totally. But I also love that it's leaving a lot to surprise. So I think there's something really fun and childlike in that that all of us kind of need.
0: There's no failure, right? There's no
1: failure, exactly. Well, I love all the takeaways from this conversation. I think I gleaned a lot from it, especially the advice part. I think I'm gonna go into every meeting, reiterating what Charlotta has told me. You don't always have to listen to all the feedback you receive. And I love that empowering statement, Charlotta. this has been such a pleasure to get to know you. It has brightened my day. I just love all the colors and conversations that we've had in the last few moments. So thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. And I can't wait to see where Bod takes off and, and get my hands on some.
0: Those are such nice things to say. Thank you so much, Gina, for this, yeah, for the moment to get to know you on a Friday afternoon. Thanks so much for being here for the CoLab Career Stories podcast. Please follow us on social media at Join the CoLab and sign up to become a member and share your story at jointhecolab.com.